Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to episode 124. Today, our guest is Shelby John. She is the host of the Confident Sober Women podcast and founder of the Facebook group by the same name. She is a mother of three and a wife to one. She is a clinical social worker in Maryland that focuses on helping women control their minds and bodies to build confidence using all that she has learned in her own healing. So Shelby and I talk about her early struggle with depression and a suicide attempt in high school and how alcohol was a way in which she found relief until finally having to watch herself on a police interrogation video after she had been arrested while in an alcohol-driven blackout, and how now, being able to look back, this memory fills her with some sense of gratitude because it was a change moment for her. I really appreciate how Shelby just puts it all out there and shares her wisdom and knowledge and growth and gratitude. That's coming up, so stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. A great guest today, Shelby John, and she is going to talk about her journey of recovery and how she helps uh, women overcome addiction and empower themselves and thrive in their life. Shelby, introduce yourself. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here, a part of the Addicted Mind podcast. I love to listen to the stories that you bring to the recovery community. And like you said earlier, I think it's so important for us as folks that are living in recovery to bring hope to those who are still trying to figure it out out there, right? Just that, poss- that possibility that life beyond the substances can be very beautiful and and possible. And so, possible, yeah. I love that part of just the conversation we had a minute ago. Um, 
And that's what I like to do too. I'm super passionate about uh, women who struggle with substances and who are, have chosen to begin a life of recovery and who live that lifestyle for many, many years. I got sober on July 1st, 2002. And that feels like a really long time ago. Now. <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes when I say that date, I, it doesn't seem that long ago, but then I'm like, wow, that was kind of a lifetime ago. Um, and in many ways it does feel like that. And then sometimes it doesn't because sometimes I'm hit right in the face with just those same kinds of feelings of desperation, or I don't intuitively know how to handle things. And so just like I was in active addiction, there are definitely times, uh, and I've had many things in life that have occurred that have created this, where those feelings come back up. And I have to be able to use the tools that I've learned in recovery to deal with them and to keep myself emotionally and spiritually fit. Um, right. But that I would imagine that took a uh... A, a journey to get there like that didn't happen overnight and it probably wasn't easy as most of these things are there they can be sometimes pretty painful to to kind of get to the other side so i would love to kind of hear how it evolved for you sure definitely all of those things so i um grew up in a wonderful family i'm, I'm living in maryland i grew up with the a lovely life. Um, I was given, you know, all the things. And I started dating my husband, who's now my husband in high school, call him my greatest prisoner sometimes. Um, and I was just always that girl who never felt good enough. I never felt smart enough, pretty enough, thin enough for whatever group I was involved in. I just never really felt comfortable in my own skin. I know that seems like a very cliche thing to say in the recovery rooms, but that's exactly how it was for me. But that's and, a painful experience when we, we don't feel comfortable with ourselves. We're stuck. We have to live with ourselves. But if we don't feel comfortable with ourselves, we're stuck with ourselves and we got to do something about it. We do. And for me, I didn't have a lot of reasons why I didn't feel comfortable within myself. I mean, I had some some things that were, you know, trauma in my childhood, but not like what I viewed as to be very extreme. And so I spent a lot of time thinking, what's wrong with you? Like, why don't you feel good enough? Like you have all this life, you know, you've got this boyfriend and these parents and you go to school and, but yet I still felt really kind of dark on the inside. And, um, I was an alcoholic of the depressive type. And right. so when I went off to college is when my drinking really took off. I was kind of a late bloomer and really discovered that I could numb out when I drank a lot and often. And so I got into some real emotional trouble in that stage of life because I was messing around with things like relationships and friendships and just different things that I really didn't have the skills or tools to handle. And then you pour alcohol on top of all of that and it mixes it all up and makes for quite a mental mess, I guess. Right. And yeah. 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 And so when I was a sophomore in high school, I had my first suicide attempt. I didn't really understand. I think at the time I just really wanted to not be alive. I didn't really want to be dead, but I didn't really want to be alive and I didn't know how to handle it. And so that's what I chose to do. And I wouldn't say that it was a wake up call. I wouldn't say that it was really anything. I didn't tell anybody that, that, that I did that. I kind of just came out of it myself. And then off to the races, I went for lots and lots more drinking. And and I think, you know, hearing your story as you're talking about that, I, you know, what came to my mind is that for a lot of people, you know, we have this idea of people who struggle with addiction that, you know, 
it's it's all a mess and it's all crazy. And what you said, you know, is kind of that depressive type. Like on the outside, everything looks okay. Really, I'm imagining, this is what I'm imagining. Everything looks okay. And really on the inside, you're kind of, I don't want to say dying, but but maybe, but maybe like kind of like this dark space. Yeah, okay. I think you could say dying. I think that you're spot on. And that continued on into my young adulthood. I did have all of the things, you know, I married that man. He's a wonderful, smart, high achieving man. I graduated from college. I went, you know, we bought a home, you know, all of the things. So always for the rest of my drinking, I felt like on the outside, nobody really knew. I think people right. knew that I had problematic drinking because they could see the results uh, outwardly, you know, it was obvious. I had, I had some social challenges. I didn't have any real consequences till the very end of my drinking, but I, there was a lot of times of embarrassment of my mom saying things to me like, don't drink too much at the company party, you know, try not to embarrass your husband, you know, stuff like that. So it was obvious that there was something going on, but I still put my smile on. I still maintained my job. I got a master's degree in social work while I was still drinking at the end of my drinking, which is hilarious to me. But it makes so, a lot of sense. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> therapists, social workers. I mean, there's a reason we get into this right. profession. <laughs> yes, I 100% agree with that. I think it's really important that we make sure that we do our own work. And yeah. We're in this profession. Many people do not. So just because we're therapists doesn't mean that we are well equipped to, do, to deal with being a therapist. So that's another discussion we can have on another podcast day. But um, right, right. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, here well, you're, you're going along and you're drinking to kind of cover up this depression, cover up the sadness, it's not good enoughness, whatever you want to call that, that pain. And uh, people are starting to notice they're, they're seeing it. Yeah, I was definitely um, not well on the inside. I did not have any esteem, I say. You know, I just did not. I thought I was kind of the, it's funny because I got sober in AA and they talk about it's just that we're self-centered, right? That's the first time I really heard that term. And certainly, certainly the first time I heard it being referred to, to me being self-centered because I thought, well, that means you think so highly of yourself. Right. Right. All I thought was I was like a piece of dirt on the floor. And so I was immediately like, I'm not self-centered. What are you talking about? I can't stand myself. Um, And what I came to learn and was taught that self-centeredness isn't what I think about myself, but how often and learned that I thought about myself all the time. Right. When was I going to drink? When was the next time I was going to drink? When was I going to act out in this way? When was I going to have to lie? Um, when was I going to have to lie about the lie? And, and so, and, and it's hard not to be self-centered. One, when you're in pain, it's hard not to be self-centered. And then, if you've got an addiction that you got to maintain to to deal with that pain, it's hard not to be self-centered. Yeah, the pain is great. The pain is very great in addiction. I mean, and for me, again, like I said, I was just in that deep, dark place. No one in my life probably would have said she was depressed, and I don't really even know today if I would be have been considered clinically depressed based on what I know and see in my own practice. What I think I had a lot of was anxiety, but I didn't know, no one called it that back then. Right. I thought it was just chaos. Like I just lived in this constant chaos. Like I wasn't comfortable. I wasn't, I was doing all the things. I was a perfectionist. I had an eating disorder. I was, you know, I was doing all of these things on the outside that make it look like I had my shit together and I really did it. And on the inside, I was just like a scared little girl. So yeah. the alcohol kind of took away that 
pain for me, or I felt that it was the glue that was keeping me together. It was helping me to keep all of my stuff together when really it was um, tearing me apart. Um, yeah. So for me, the pain was definitely great. And towards the end, things became extremely desperate. I was really kind of spinning out of control. I was just at the end of that master's degree program. I was drinking all the time. I had problems with food and my marriage was starting to spiral. My relationships were just not that great. It just wasn't authentic at all. I wasn't real. I didn't even really know who I was or what I wanted. I couldn't have conversations about my needs outside of my mouth. You know, I would have fights right. with my husband in my head and I just didn't have communication skills or the ability to feel comfortable expressing myself um, and then feeling like people would actually listen to me or they would lean in. I felt also that I didn't, that I wasn't valuable. Like what I had to say wasn't worth it. So I just didn't do it. And I, I love your story. And I, I love that you're saying that because I think a lot of people who, you know, maybe even listening to this podcast, you know, on the outside, everything once again looks good. I mean, you were doing a master's degree, you were married, you had all these things. And yet, um, internally, you're falling apart, you're, you're in so much pain, and it's miserable. And I, I don't think a lot of people you know, when you walk around and you're in that, you look out at everybody else and you think they've got it all together. They've got all their stuff together. And, you know, a lot of times that's just not true. So your story kind of brings truth. If someone's out there who kind of is in that same space, it's like, uh, there's help. <laughs> get You can get support. I say on a regular basis, in fact, I think I've already said it at least once this week, is we just really don't know what other people are going through. Yeah. And more and more, I think in adulthood, I'm, I'm a woman and I can only speak from my own experience with other people and women in general, is they don't, they definitely don't share the truth a lot of the time. And so you don't really hear the struggle that they're going through in their marriage or the teenager that they're dealing with that's just horrible or the the despair and the grief that they're walking around with every single day. People aren't out there sharing that stuff on a real level most of the time. And so, and especially now with social media, not to blame it, I'm on social media. I love my Facebook group and all of the women there, but many times people have struggles with putting themselves authentically out to the public. And so we tend to, you know, pretty things up and make it yeah. look only the best. And so what that does for those other people that you're talking about, really all of us, but for anybody who might be struggling even a little bit with substance use or just not feeling worthy, they see some of these things and hit at the wrong moment can really deepen their despair and make them yeah. slide down that slippery slope of not good enough ism. Right. And yeah. when really the reality is, is if you knew that person in real life or you met them on the, you know, and for coffee and they shared with you their story, there would be things that are not so great. You know, there would yeah. be some stuff that we all have because we all have it. Um, and it's not unique to substance abuse. It's not unique to any of us. It's just life as a human being. Yeah. Um, yeah. Connecting to our humanity. Happening. Right. Yeah. And so this started going on as we kind of get your story, this started going on and it sounds like things got worse and there was obviously a moment you said, I got to do something different. 
So I, at the end of my drinking, I was at a conference in Washington, D.C. with a bunch of other social workers and teens who were in foster care because I worked in child welfare at the time. And I um, would go to these conferences on a regular basis. And I was there by myself, I think, uh, with thousands of other you know, adults and young people. And I went out, of course, and I was drinking. And um, the next day, uh, there was some kind of an incident that occurred overnight. And the next day, I was taken um, out of that conference by the Washington, D.C. police and put in jail for um, two days. And I didn't even know what had happened. And so wow. that's kind of explains the entirety of my drinking. I was a blackout drinker. So I didn't even know what, what had gone on. I've never been in trouble before. Um, and it was a whole big scene, right? As you can imagine. Um, wow. I, yes, that would be a big scene. Yeah. So that was obviously very threatening to my professional life. My family was completely like in shock. Um, we had to go through all of the motions. Um, and what I'd like to share that's my favorite part about that story is how I started to think, because I did not think I had a problem with alcohol. I didn't think alcoholism was my problem. I knew I was crazy. I thought I had a mental health problem. I just didn't think alcohol had anything to do with it. And so the the story that I always share when I go to, to meetings or I talk with other people is when I met with my attorney to, to kind of start walking through this process, he had the interrogation tape from that um, police department. We watched it in his office, which was probably one of the most painful things I had ever done at that time. And wow. it was me with these um, two policemen for 45 minutes, basically explaining to them how I knew I wasn't drunk and disregarding these horrible allegations that were made against me. All I could focus on was that I really wasn't that drunk. So I know when I'm drunk, when I'm drunk and that wasn't it. So that was kind of wow. an eye opener. <laughs> Hold on a second. I'm just, I'm kind of blown away by that story because I would imagine seeing yourself and watching yourself in that moment as just so painful, but wow, it, it transformative too. I mean, now, but yeah, I, that's, that's, a, that's, that is, that is a huge like wake up call. I mean, I don't think a lot of us um, face it quite that frontal, if that makes sense, or quite like that hard. Well, right. And like I said, I did not think I had anything to, alcohol had anything to do with my problems, but of course everybody else did. And so I wasn't like the girl that was saying, oh, I need help or, oh, I need to go to AA or treatment or whatever. I was not that girl, but I was definitely taken off to treatment because everybody else was like, you have a problem. This is bad. You're going off to rehab. And so that's what I did. And so I did my 30 days in rehab. I started working a program of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's just what was presented to me. Um, I was taught early on that's not the only way to get sober. It's just the way they knew how to get sober. And so that's how I learned it. And so I had been sober for a little while. I'm going to say uh, maybe two months, three, maybe two to three months by the time I made it down there to the office to see that video. And I'm really thankful that I was sober for a little while because yeah. I had it been early on, like the first week or whatever, before I got some education around addiction and like what was really going on with me, there's no way I would have been able to process what that really was, which was me trying to get out of a really bad situation and explain my drinking and how it wasn't a problem with policemen. You know, like to me now, of course, I can look back and think that is so serious, you know, 
And yeah. to anyone else I know, I would be like, wow, that's, that's a really big deal. But there's no way, obviously, because I was in that situation, that early on I would have been able to see that. So I'm grateful that it was a little bit after I got sober right. in that office and, and had to deal with that. But I'll never forget that. And I hope I never do. Uh, yeah. because there was a lot of things that didn't happen to me. I've never had a DUI. I've never been in trouble other than that. Like there was a lot of nevers that didn't happen to me. Um, my marriage stayed intact. I have three beautiful teenagers now. There's a lot of, um, nevers, right? Yeah. But as I was told early on when I started working through some step work was, you know, my list of transgressions or whatever might not have been that long, but it's, pretty big. Like it's still yeah. pretty big what was on there. So I needed that. I needed that powerful statement right in my face for me to kind of get it. Cause I was a little stubborn and, um, it was helpful and it's helpful yeah. for me to look back to remind myself where I came from, you know, yeah. because that was my life. Even though I, I have completely a million percent different life today that it, that was my life. And I hope I never forget it. Yeah. And, um, you know, hearing you say just having your now in this moment, your gratitude ab about experiencing that, you know, uh, I think that's, that says something a lot. That says a lot about your journey that you that you've done. You know, when we can look back on our pain with with some gratitude that we've learned something from it. I think that is a sign that we're, you know, we've been working on our stuff and working on ourselves and, and transcending it. Oh, that's so true. And that's why, I don't know if you haven't experienced with 12 steps, but if you go around the 12 step rooms, you hear old timers say things like, you know, I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic or I'm so grateful that I'm an alcoholic. And when I was in the beginning of recovery, again, I was not the girl who walked in with my cute little purse and said, I'm ready to do this thing. You know, I resisted it for probably a year and a half. For 18 months, I sat in those rooms and said, I don't really belong here. I'm not an alcoholic. I heard those people say things like that. And I would laugh to myself, like, you're crazy. Like, what is, how could you possibly say something like that? This is the worst thing ever. And after about 18 months, as I stuck around because I was honestly too afraid not to because of everything that had gone on. And I started to feel better, of course, because when we get sober, we feel better. <laughs> we feel better. Right. Our, bodies, our bodies start to get better. Our mind starts to clear. We still have a lot of wreckage to clean up, but we start to get better. And so slowly but surely after hanging around for a while, I started to understand what they were talking about, what that gratitude really was, because they were saying if they didn't drink the way they drank or use drugs the way they use them and lose everything, they wouldn't have found their lives. They wouldn't have found themselves. They wouldn't be here. Right. I wouldn't have been alive today. I wasn't expecting to live to be 30 years old. I had no plan to live past them. And right. so now I have this beautiful life, which I am incredibly grateful for. And it really stinks that I had to go through all of that stuff to get here. And some people don't make it. Yeah. But my story is designed exactly the way it was supposed to be designed. And I took every step to get me here. Wow. Thank you for sharing that and putting that out there and, and having the courage to share your story. Cause I think so many people need to hear it, you know, that, that there is, there's something else out there that is beyond all that suffering. And if you just really work hard, there there's, 
there's there's a way there. Hang hang on, get the help, get the support. So that kind of transitions us to what you're doing with all this knowledge and experience and wisdom. Well, what first things first, I think it's important to acknowledge what you just said is so important because the help is available and people are available. You know, because it's sometimes I think people like myself included, especially back then, could have could have taken that like work hard, you know, just work harder at it, just put your you know, your feet to the ground, pull up your bootstraps, you know, and, tr- and tried that approach to life, which is what I was already living and trying and it wasn't working and keep spinning your wheels out of control and keep digging that hole even deeper. So yes, we all have to work hard. Of course, I'm a huge believer in personal responsibility. We all have to work hard, but we cannot do it alone. Yes. And so we need the resources of people like you who are putting out other recovery messages, people like all of the brilliant authors that are popping up with incredible works of art around uh, recovery. We need the work of therapists and 12-step programs and Celebrate Recovery and whatever your thing is, yoga instructors and meditation. We need all the people yeah. in order to come together to form a lifestyle that's going to support emotional sobriety. Yeah. And so that's a really important message because some of us, I come across many women who are kind of white knuckling it, right? You know, they're kind of white knuckling it out there. And they're like, if I just work harder at this and they're making it about their will, they're making oh, it yeah. about themselves and they're forgetting that this disease has a will of its own and it has an agenda all its own. And its only desire is to take you out. Right. Yeah. And although there are lots of different ways of looking at substance use these days, I call it modern day recovery. It's very different than when I got sober. You know, some people are doing the sober curious thing and some people are trying to moderate or there's a lot of ways to do this. And there's things that are coming out that were not accessible to me. Um, And you have to figure out what that work, what that is for you. For me, Moderation was not working. We tried controlled drinking. I did all the things, just like it talks about in the Alcoholics Anonymous text. It did not work for me. Right, right, right yeah. I was killing myself. I tried to legitimately kill myself. So I, it just wasn't working. So if someone had suggested to me that I just slow down my drinking or try this or that, I was not going to survive that. So for me, that wasn't going to be the proper tool. And so finding the package or the cocktail or whatever you want to call it that works for you with all of those things and all of those guides coming up alongside of you to support you as you walk through this new way of living is really important. We cannot do it alone. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I have the saying it's, it's, we heal through the eyes of others. Yeah. Right. And we, you know, if you're out there alone, know that there are people out there that, can support you and want to support you and will support you. Now, not everybody deserves that trust. I would say that there are not always, not everybody in this world is good. You got to find trustworthy people, but you know, there are those people out there and and you got to look for them. You got to find them. Ask yes, them and, for and it's, we have more accessibility than ever before. You know, I said something yeah. about social media before that was sounded maybe negative. And of course there can be negatives to it. But having all of this access at our fingertips to the internet and to Facebook groups and to courses and programs makes things way more accessible than like when I was kind of coming up. I mean, 
the internet wasn't even really a thing. So right, now right, you can yeah. connect with sober women every single day, all day long. You can do online meetings. You can be yeah. in, I have a Facebook group for women called Confident Sober Women. You know, it's grown and grown because women just kind of come and get supported by me. I teach them a lot about what it means to be emotionally sober and I support them along their journey. Um, I started a podcast like you, it's with the same name, Confidence Over Women. So I support them in that way where I can help them learn the concepts of natural wellness, right? So learn how to make these big changes in our lives using things like cognitive behavioral techniques, like changing our thought patterns. Right. I talk to them a lot about transforming our daily habits and routines. We talk about personal core values, like you mentioned, and spirituality, so there's so many resources now, and that's that's why I stepped into that space because I feel so passionate about recovery, and I feel so hopeful that most people can get what I have or what you have or what others have, whatever they want, if yeah. they just yeah. build a life along these steps, one, one little t- tiny piece at a time then the the rest kind of starts to follow. But I think sometimes when you're so in the depths of your own, of the grips of your own addiction or depression or anxiety and all the things, it's impossible to even see that that is possible. Right. So right. that's why I do the work that I do. And I'm super passionate about the women that come across um, my path. I also have a private practice. So I get the pleasure of sitting with women and men in their trauma and I do EMDR trauma work. So you probably, you you can see this from that larger perspective. I mean, through the lens of trauma, through all of that, how has your recovery and your own story played into that? Um, I think in a variety of ways. I mean, there's the compassion piece that's always going to be there. You know, if, if you sit with someone where you legit can say, you know, I might not have been exactly in your shoes, but I have felt those same feelings before. I know that desperation. I know that that right. sadness. I know that despair. I think that's a real blessing to clinical work, you know, when you can seriously understand what it's like to be in the, in the grips of addiction and then also what it's like to get out of it. Um, making the link between trauma and addiction has also been so incredible. The, the neuroscience work that's being done around that is really powerful. And we're getting more and more information about the link between this childhood trauma um, brain activity and what it does to our neuropathways and then how that affects us and our ability to cope later on. And a lot of times yeah. why we give up substances. And kind of like what you were talking about earlier in your story, leaving you with that underlying anxiety and depression that you can't really put your finger on that's there but it's there and sometimes those those go back to those early childhood experiences which may be no fault of anybody you know even like you know even if you have quote good parents and a good situation there there can be some some events that just cause our nervous system to go offline and then we don't know how to settle it, and we find a way to do it. Substances, behaviors that aren't helpful, all that kind of stuff. Totally. And also trauma is very relative. So what is difficult or challenging or very traumatic to you, the same experience might have just been like not much to me. I'm going to have just been able to get through it, no problem. But if right. you are like um, a child with a little bit more of a sensitive bent, you know, or you have 
a little underlying anxiety or you just have some attachment issues that come from stuff during maybe maybe there was birth trauma that's nobody's yeah. fault that just happens but it but it sort of sets your brain up for being a little bit more uh sensitive in nature and needing stronger attachments and so then maybe you didn't receive that in the way you needed to and your brain internalized that as not getting what you needed and it didn't mean your mom or dad was a bad parent. It just didn't, it didn't work out for you. It wasn't what you needed. And then goodness, you, you put on other stuff. You know, you were bullied in high school. You had a bad boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, you were sexually traumatized. I mean, there's a million things that go on for people that sometimes we just brush off as being like, well, whatever, it was no big deal. Um, yeah. when for your brain, it really was. Yeah, I think that's such a good point because that goes back to what we were even talking before where, you know, a lot of people don't reach out for help because they feel like they shouldn't have problems. Like they feel like they shouldn't be anxious or they shouldn't be depressed and they judge themselves and then all that shame comes up and then they don't reach out for help and they don't get support and um, they have to turn to these isolative ways to, to cope alcohol drugs sex whatever it is right gambling whatever it is to try and just numb that out get that away and it's just so it, it breaks my heart because you know it's like there's people out there that can help you totally i mean and i remember sitting i, I went to therapy pretty early on i probably maybe six months, six to 12 months. And I started working with the therapist that I had forever. I mean, I still go back for a tune up when I need to. And she was an EMDR therapist. So she had to listen to me many, many times say, well, my life isn't that bad. My right. story isn't that bad. I don't, I mean, what's wrong with me? I didn't even, I wasn't this, I wasn't that this didn't happen. And, you know, she was able to help educate me on what we just said, which was everybody's brain and body internalizes things differently. And now I don't know the science on all of this because I'm not a scientist, but there's some wonderful new research that's coming out on generational trauma. You know, they're talking yeah. about this passing down through the cellular structure to the, to the, to the fetus generational trauma. So we don't even know half of what we're going to know probably in, in 20 years from now about what's going on with our brains. Right. That, that, uh, yeah, I've I've read some of those studies, and that just blew me away. That trauma from a parent can get passed down through the DNA to the next generation, which is just kind of that's kind of mind blowing, <laughs> and really really has to make us rethink how we look at some of these issues. That some of this stuff is just part of our biology, and we don't have to own it all you know, in a sense, we can get support for it. We have to own our behaviors and our choices, obviously, with what we do with it. But some of this pain or hurt or suffering um, is beyond us. Uh, 100%. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this works into like the clinical world and just the medical field in general, too. And it does help explain, like in, in my role as a therapist, you can see the generational trauma, you can see the systemic nature of different types of behaviors. And now it's like, oh, that makes sense that it might be passed down. It seems almost like a cop-out at first. You're like, really? 
is that really true? But you can see it very clearly. And how we can intervene now by saying, let's break the cycle. You know, let's help you clear out your trauma by literally doing real um, trauma processing work where you're clearing out at the cellular level through EMDR or some other somatic experience work. And so that you're not passing that continuously down to the next generations. So it's going to inform us in such an amazing way to potentially make things way better for the generations that are going to come after us. But I like what you said about, you know, we, we do have to take responsibility. I, like I said, I believe very strongly in that we don't have to own all the things. And the saying that I love so much is, you know, like alcoholism or addiction, it doesn't excuse my behaviors, but it sure does help explain them. And I live by that pretty much in all ways that I can, you know, like a lot of times our, our backgrounds or our, our upbringings or our situations, maybe even your stress, maybe you're going through something right now and the stress you're under, it doesn't excuse you lashing out at your child and acting a fool, but it sure does help explain it. Right. Yeah. And this goes to another question I want to ask you that we were talking about earlier before we started recording uh, about really knowing what your core values are Mm -hmm. because i think that is critical to the process and that's one of the things that you help people do is 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 kind of outline what your core values so that you can make informed decisions based on your values not emotion yes this is really exciting work to me um and i feel like i'm continuously learning in this particular area because there's just so much to study and take in around it. And I created a membership for sober women to support them in their journey beyond recovery. So I don't do like the early stuff, like getting sober part, but after you've been sober for a little while, maybe like nine months to a year to many, many years, I offer a membership called the Sober Freedom Inner Circle, where women come in and they can learn these skills of emotional sobriety some of which I've already mentioned. And one of the sections is on developing our personal core values because the link between um, discontentment and anxiety and not understanding what our values are is so strong. Um, And I've seen that in my work because I specialize in anxiety as well, that it became apparent to me that I really needed to bring this to attention and help women understand Um, how to do this, because that's not something that we talk about typically in our friend circles. You know, it's something you might see on a business uh, wall, you know, or, you know, associated with companies or something like our values and our mission statement, but we can have personal values as well. And discovering them is a process that's pretty in-depth and emotional. You know, sometimes it can get really deep, you know, when you're looking at these, I use um, a couple of different activities, but one is you're literally looking at these lists of words, you know, thousands of words, and you have to take the time to kind of write down or circle the ones that really jump out as being special or important to you. And then right. you might come up with like 25 to 30 words. And then you have to bring that 30 down to, to 10 and then down to five. So you're literally having to decide what are the most important things to you in your life. That doesn't mean that the other things aren't important, but what are the most important things? What are the things you want to always make sure your decisions are living by? So for example, one of my core values is vitality. 
And vitality to me means all things health, all things glowing, vibrancy, um, feeling well, mentally bottle in your body. And so when I'm in a space where maybe I'm taxed, um, I'm stressed out, I'm not taking as best care of myself and I make decisions related to like nutrition, for example, or I find myself standing in front of my pantry and I'm gorging myself on pretzel nuggets or um, right. something that's not really a part of my, my health lifestyle. Um, it's not making, those aren't making decisions according to my core value of vitality. And so my head, my, my thinking brain, my, my back part of my brain and my heart don't necessarily connect that, but my, my frontal lobe does, right? It knows what my core values are. It knows that like my core value of vitality is very important to me. And now I'm making a decision that's directly against that. And so it creates this imbalance that, that causes anxiety it causes discontentment. And of course, then from there, you're going down the path of problems with sleep, you know, problems with your relationships, problems with communication and on and on and on. Yeah. So that's why this work is so important. And um, it's actually really can be very fun too. It's it's emotional sometimes because sometimes I, I do this with some women and they'll say, wow, this was really hard. They weren't expecting it to be hard. You know, they were like, well, I know what's important to me. But when you really get into it, you know, um, and then sometimes we discover things that we think might be our values, like they're aspiring values. We want that to be true. But when we really look at it, we're not making any decisions that are in line with that. So it's more like we would like that to be true, but we, but it's not really our value. Right, right. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like, I'm taking a, a value on for maybe other people or, or, or I, I think I'm supposed to have that value. And it really doesn't match me. It really doesn't when I really take the time to slow down and think about it. Mm -hmm. I go, wait, that that doesn't that's actually not mine. I don't know where I got that from. Why did I? Why did I carry this value along? And it's, I don't actually really want it. Well, that right. speaks to a generational um, informant too, because we pick up all the stories that were told from where yeah. we came from. So if your family had a big, strong value of um, achievement, let's say, you know, yeah. and achievement was how you express love and it was all about grades and success and which college you go to and get the best job. And that's all you knew. And you were like, okay, I'm on the path. You know, like my mom loves me when I get good grades. So I'm going to keep doing that thing. And she wants me to be a doctor. So I'm going to go off to medical school. And then you end up finding out that like, dang, like you're not passionate about helping people in that way at all. Like you right. really just wanted to be an artist. <laughs> and that can be, it can be hard. It can be hard to let go of, of that too. And kind of go, wait a minute. Um, I've worked so hard on this value. That's not mine. And it's causing exactly. me a lot of pain unconsciously because I'm not connected to it. And I, I think outlining your values and, and writing them down and knowing what they are and making them concrete is helps you get out of that emotional mind or the pain driven mind or the emotional driven mind to be able to help you. Yeah. Get your frontal cortex online and be able to go, Hey, wait, does this fit? Does this decision I'm about to make fit in my core values because if it doesn't maybe i shouldn't do it <laughs> i say all the time to my husband sometimes when we, we joke about it and I'll, I'll say use your adult brain if yeah. you're using your adult brain when you're talking 
Yeah. <laughs> so it's and, so easy and, for us to be activated and triggered by like our children or whatever. We want to just like go crazy, you know? <laughs> and and I, I like to add out there too, like, you know, we're not going to do this perfectly, but I, I'm like, if you're at 80%, you're doing pretty darn good. So mm-hmm. cut yourself a break and get, do it 80% of the time and, and you're, you're going to be good. I agree. I think that's probably better than most people in our country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, man, if you got 80%, you're rocking it. <laughs> totally. I actually did an episode. I recorded an episode with, um, the lady who owns the hello someday podcast on uh-huh. my podcast and her, one of her special areas is personal core values and it's going to come out on April the 1st. So if any of your listeners want to check oh, that cool. out, we'll, we'll put links um, in the, in the show notes. Yeah. It's kind of cool. We get, we really dive into more about personal core values. Oh, that's awesome. That would be great. So we're kind of getting on our time here. So is there anything else you, you would want to add or, I guess I, I like to ask, ask this question a lot at the end of, end of the podcast when we get closer to the end. If someone out there is listening and maybe they're struggling and they're hearing this podcast, what do you what do you want to tell them? What I want to tell them is that there is hope. I hope you've picked that up from our conversation today. I want to say that there's many people who are ready and waiting to take you on, you know, to extend their hand, whether it's, um, one of the the ways we've mentioned already, I, I do recommend that everybody believes in this or wants it for their life for a long time. But in the beginning, when you're trying to get sober, I do recommend using a 12 step program just initially, because you're going to get some education there. You're going to get some fellowship there. You're going to get people that come up around you and hold your hand and kind of walk with you. If you don't like everything they say, that's okay. You don't have to buy into all of the dogma and you don't have to stick around for your whole life, but go there and get some education. It's, you know, relatively free, you know, and um, it's a wonderful resource with people who are like-minded and a great way to start out your journey. If you're further along the path and you've been at this for a while, but you're experiencing some bumps in the road, things that I call like sober bottoms, you know, reach out to somebody like me or any of the other people we've talked about today, or find a Facebook group where you can really connect with other um, folks that are going to listen to you and meet you at your level of need. Uh, Reach out to find a therapist. You know, everybody can really use some therapy this, this, past couple of years, I feel like, you know, our yeah. stress level that used to be yeah. at this level of normal is now at a new level that's way higher than most of us have been living with for our lives. I think that's so true. And I, I think these times have uh, definitely caused uh, a lot of stress and pain. I mean, it, it's hard. This pandemic has, has been tough for a lot of us, for a lot of people, some even more than others. But yeah, we all need support. So yeah, I agree with you. Reach out, go get it find it. Don't give up. Mm-hmm. Keep reaching out. If the first thing doesn't work, try something else. That's right. Definitely. Don't give up. Don't give up. Oh, uh, Shelby, thank you so much for coming on and real quick. How can people find you or what's the link to your website and how can they get a hold of you? So my website is shelbyjohncoaching.com. My Facebook group is called Confident Sober Women. And my podcast is the same name, Confidence Over Women. You can come hang out with me there. You can shoot me an email. 
and I would love to meet you. That's awesome. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes as well. Uh, Shelby, once again, thank you for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. And uh, yeah, thanks. Thank you. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. I really enjoyed having Shelby John on the podcast and talking with her and hearing her story. If you want to contact Shelby John, you can find all her information at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 124. One more thing. If you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure and helps people find the podcast. And if you'd like to continue the conversation online, you can join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.